developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 176 is Bill Lloyd, a Nashville singer-songwriter, perhaps most famous for his work in the duo Foster and Lloyd in the late 80s, for which he received a Grammy nomination, but he's written or co-written several country hits for other artists, such as Trisha Yearwood, Martina McBride, and Robert Ellis Oral. He also played some with Latter-day Incarnations of Poco under Rusty Young and is now in a new band with Rusty Young's former associates after Rusty had passed away. So we'll hear about all this, but mostly we're going to focus on his work in Power Pop. You're right now listening to Caught in Traffic, a 1982 single by a band called Sergeant Arms. He co-fronted with David Surface. His first solo album was 1987, and he's put out over 10 of them largely in the power pop genre. We're going to discuss the title track from his last full solo album, Don't Kill the Messenger, 2020. Then we'll look at What Time Won't Heal from Working the Long Game, 2018, which was co-written by Graham Gouldman from 10CC, a very famous songwriter himself. And then we'll look back to a song called Off and Running, recorded for his first solo album, Feeling the Elephant, 1987, Though not actually included on that when it was originally issued, it's been included on the reissue. We'll conclude by listening to Rough Edges, that you may know as a Poco song, which he co-wrote with Radney Foster and Rusty Young in the late 80s. This version will be by the new band Cimarron 615. For more information, please look to BillLloydMusic.net. For more about this podcast, look to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you want to support the effort, and for this episode, get some bonus discussion with Bill, please support me at patreon.com slash music, or click that subscribe button on the Nakedly Examined Music feed on the Apple Podcasts app to sign up for a paid subscription to my podcast channel, which gets you ad-free feeds and some bonus content for three of my podcasts. Here we go. So I will have played a little bit of... Caught in Traffic by Sergeant Arms from their 1982 single. You know, the thing that I thought had vaunted you to stardom was your starting point was the more country-esque, the Foster and Lloyd. But no, this is before you were doing this thing. And in fact, I then saw you on TV fronting your own band in, what, 1986, doing this power pop thing. So this seems to be where you started your soul and is what we're going to focus on for most of today. Shall I expand on that? Tell me I'm wrong. My, That's fine. The, the first band I ever had that made a record was called Southern Star. And that goes back to the late 70s. Are you familiar with the singer-songwriter Kim Ritchie? Yes. Kim and I and another fella who was in Sergeant Arms with me, David Surface, and another fella named David Walker had a kind of a harmony, a CSNY sort of inspired songwriter band that uh, was called Southern Star. We opened for Tom Rush, and we had a song on one of those radio station albums where local artists send in their music. And so that was the first time ever on record. And this was how, how old about? 1976 or seven, somewhere in there. So I'm 66 now. 
born late 55. I said if this was a high school band or if this was a, you know, no, it was as a little an later adult. All right. college era. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was like a singer songwriter band, largely acoustic, but we did do some electric gigs later. And then uh, that kind of morphed into the new wave era, which uh, this band, Sergeant Arms, that you saw the video of, that was that. And, and that was early 80s. So the single that we put out was in 82. So we're going to get pretty rapidly to the new thing, but that power pop, I mean... I actually had put out a, a CD a couple years ago that was just sort of gathered kind of the best of, or what I thought was the best of all my power pop tracks and did kind of a retrospective of so many years of making records that sound like that. I love that sound. Big beat, crunchy and jangly guitars, you know, and, and, and lots of melody. I'm a big fan of that. Well, then let's listen to Don't Kill the Messenger, the title track from the album of that name, 2020. You have a few words to say before we hear it, and then we'll talk more in detail afterward. At this stage in my life, I tend to assemble them. I just go in the studio and I write, and then I go, oh, I really want to record that. So I go in and record it, and then it just sits on a shelf for a while while I assemble these records that I make. And I think a lot of people maybe do it that way. You know, I just was involved with the project where we actually had a budget and we got to go into a big studio. But at this stage of the game for me, most of the records I make, especially on my own, just get kind of recorded in fits and starts. I write some songs, record them, and then I assemble a bunch of songs that seem to work well together. And are you still committed to the album format? I saw that we have the Pandemic 3-pack, some singles. Since this, will those go on an album or that is its own thing? It's done. I get ambitious from time to time and, and want to put things out. And especially during the uh, pandemic era of, which I guess we're still, are we ever over it? <laughs> People pretend it's fine. <laughs> we can, let's pretend that it's over. But uh, I was a little ambitious and, and bored and wanted to get some new music out there. I had a song called Hazmat Suit, which you look real good in that hazmat suit. It's sort of a sexy song for people who are dressed for nuclear destruction. It's just, I wanted to get that out there and I had a couple others, so. I did a, a digital EP, but the album format I love. I have a band here in Nashville that celebrates albums. It's called The Long Players. We learn a classic album and we I reach out to people in the community and get guest singers and artists, get guest artists to come and do the record with us. That's been going on for 17 years now. Can you say something about this song in particular, Don't Kill the Messenger? What's the message <laughs> before we hear it? I just was watching what was going on in the world. And it seemed like the media that has checks and balances seemed to be under fire. And I just wanted to kind of stick up for someone who wants to be a truth teller. And of course, every day these days, people say, well, which version of the truth are you wanting? I don't know, just someone who's willing to say what's on their mind. Say you need 
this had an actual band, right? <laughs> I see it, you're not just doing all the instruments on this one in particular. Yeah, sometimes I do, but when I had that opportunity to play with real musicians, not that I don't count myself as one, but to do it with a real rhythm section playing off them mm-hmm. is, is, uh, is always good. And that one has, I think maybe Mike Vargo plays bass on that and Seth Timms plays keys. And I have Martin Lynn's drums. He's great. He plays with Chuck Mead and he's out on the road with him quite a bit. Do you come in just strumming it at them and like, let's work it up live because there's three of you. And just to get that down? In this particular case on that song, I had a bunch of songs and there's a studio here in town called Blackbird. And they have a thing called Blackbird Academy, where during this time of uh, a lot of home studios these days and a lot of these bigger studios here in Nashville supplement their influx. Since there's how many major labels do we have anymore? A few, where it used to be quite a few. So the big studios here in town very often have recording schools. And there's a recording school at Blackbird called Blackbird Academy, and they get students in. And they need artists to come in and be guinea pigs. Well, before they raise their rates, which I'm not complaining about, they have to do what they have to do, but I was able to afford to go in there as a guinea pig and record with students there. But I could walk out of there with a bunch of basic tracks, like rhythm tracks with a bass player and a drummer Mm -hmm. that I could overdub on later and ended up getting a lot of recordings that way. In fact, I still haven't touched bottom on that. I've still got some of those sitting around that haven't been finished up yet. So for this album, even though you're putting out albums, you know, you'd put out one in 2018 at least, and this pretty regularly, you know, how far back are these going? In recent times, it's been a little more steady. Back when uh, my first solo record was like 85, 86, and then not again till 94, Set to Pop came out, and then 98 for Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, and then Back to Even was after that. And then there was like a long period. And then starting around 2012, I started really putting out records pretty regularly. It used to be like sometimes five or 10 years between solo records. Is it just mostly technological that it's just... I was just, I was busy doing other things, you know. Well, yeah, I know in the Uh, the 90s, you were a bit busy. You know, following Foster and Lloyd, I was part of a band called the Sky Kings with Rusty Young and Pat Simmons and John Cowan. And then following that, I, I worked at the Country Music Hall of Fame as a stringed instrument curator. And then started being a sideman with Cheap Trick when they were doing their Sergeant Pepper with orchestra gigs. And that was tremendous fun. Anyway, I've been very fortunate to be able to fall from one thing to another. If we can zoom back in on Don't Kill the Messenger, can you say a little about, you got the rhythm tracks laid down. How are you constructing the guitar bed here? Do you remember if this two 12 strings? Is this a 12 and a six or is this Largely, when we play these things down in the studio, you're reacting to what the other people are playing. Mm-hmm. And so usually I, I come in with a, either an acoustic or an electric, you know, just a rhythm. And I'm singing a, a vocal that's not a keeper vocal, but a vocal that's, uh, I hate to call it a dummy vocal, but it's a vocal that is not going to be the one that'll be the final one. It's like a reference. And you just build the track from there. And you just try to get a spirited performance and a push-pull of whatever things that the rhythm section does, you know, so you're largely reacting to whatever everyone else is playing. And when you get there, you kind of know, wow, that feels okay. Let's move on to the next song. Mm-hmm. So for instance, let, and let me just play the intro here. I'm just here to tell you 
There's an electric 12 and electric six on that. Couple guitars. Yeah. And what's the thought process in terms? Is it sort of drums driven in terms of how long is that going to go? Like where it's all just one chord and the bass swooping up and down octaves. Well, it's suspension. It's a E sus suspension. You're a musician. You know what I'm talking about. It's just an introductory thing before the verse starts. And so you've got this suspended chord with the drums kind of Keith Moon. I love the Who. The drums was kind of filling in a lot of spots and, you know, just a short introduction, which is however many bars, eight bars or something. Right. Yeah. Just a standard as opposed to to tattoo done, you know, just like, let's get into the verse. And it always comes out a little different. You tried a lot of different things. And again, you're reacting to what everyone else is doing too. I did have the idea I wanted to have that suspended chord at the beginning. Like if you were doing the drums yourself, would you probably just lay down a click track? I don't know exactly what's going to go there. And then I'll fill the space as opposed to what is the drummer feeling in terms of how long these things. So you do it again between the end of the first chorus and the beginning of the verse. There's another sort of drum driven eight count. It's not so different, but when I'm doing it on my own and with other people, because when I play on my own and build it up from scratch, I started off as a drummer. I, I, when I was a teenager, hmm. I was playing three nights a week when I was 15 in a local bar band, which was probably illegal. But the drums is always something I've kind of, I started there. My stamina is not worth the darn anymore. Don't ask me to do a gig. But in terms of going into the studio and making something happen there, I, I feel confident always that I can pull that off. So basically what I have when I do it on my own, I just have a guide vocal and a guide guitar and then do the drum pattern there. And they just kind of make it up as I go and go, okay, this is what we're going to do as a band. And then I add the parts on later. It's just you have to kind of think of the arrangement in your head as you go. So what's the trade-off between getting the fun and joy of being able to make that much more of the sound come out of your head versus having another person there that you actually get to... I like both. I did an album called Boy King of Tokyo in 2012, and I really wanted to have one complete record where I played everything myself and wrote all the songs by myself, sang every note myself. And because I'd grown up listening to Paul McCartney and Todd Rundgren, Stevie Wonder, all these great people who were able to do these one-man band records, Emmett Rhodes, you know, all those kind of guys. And I wanted to do one too. So yeah, that's kind of a, a little bit of an ego trip, but I really wanted to be able to say, yeah, you know, this is one I did all on my own. After that, I went back to being smart about it, getting other musicians to come play when I could. Let me jump to getting into the, the verse here. For some reason, power pop, it can seem formulaic, but if you're willing to just, I don't know, make the chords thicker or something, like the way Big Star does it, which I know is one of your influences, this kind of verse, it allows you to, I don't know, is there actually anything tricky in the chords there at all? Are you doing, is there a sixth in there at least? It doesn't strike me as being that complicated, but there may be a relationship between the chords, how they get to each other. 
that's very much a Kinks thing. Ray Davis, I got to play on a Ray Davis record and got to meet him a couple times, and he's a big influence. And the way Ray would put chords together, I love. And sometimes they take these little turns in the same way that Lennon McCartney did that too. And even going back to rockabilly stuff like Carl Perkins, Honey Don't. You remember Honey Don't Mm -hmm. by Carl Perkins? The Beatles did it too. It goes from an E to a C. How come you say you will when you won't and then a C? Not an A, not a B, but a C, which I thought was, wow, that's kind of going with it. And Ray Davis used to do those kind of things. And I don't know, I just try to make it less formulaic when I can. Sure. And there's a nice build through here with adding the piano and the organ sort of in the middle subtly to kind of peek out and do those little attractions like (laughs) riffs to get you. Seth played great throughout the whole track, but I wanted to keep the power part of the power pop, you know? Mm -hmm. And so Seth isn't mixed up quite as loud as he might be otherwise, but I really wanted that big crunch and jangle of power pop to be sort of foremost in the mix. So he tends to peek out uh, of the mix from time to time, but he's a brilliant player. He's a great songwriter too. He makes really good records on his own. And just that the attraction is this sort of the effect of gravity. So just having a arpeggiated 12 string sounding birdsy thing gets this sort of feeling of rotation. And then you have you know that you're doing a walk down through the course here going into the tagline any thought about just how high are you going to let it go i mean that's a thing (laughs) in the next song that we're going to talk about in a minute you actually have a slide guitar that like let's make it go all the way to the top you know to get into the how shiny do you want the power pop to get you know you can layer a la sweet or something you can layer harmonies up the wazoo or like this one you can make it pretty relaxed and straightforward in terms of its energy levels. Yeah. Shall we talk about the slide guitar? A few more things about this, and then we'll get the second one out there. It's hard for me not to want to compare them because that's kind of the <laughs> the point. I know they're next to each other. Well, no, they're actually, those aren't two different records, but I just want the song to work and I want to be able to, the lyric to come through. I want people to be able to hear the lyric because I really do take care with that stuff. You know, I do want to write songs that, can hold meaning for people. Uh, and it's not just audio ear candy, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of lyrics just kind of float by and they don't say a lot. I really want my songs to have enough to hang on to, you know, to mean something to somebody. So uh, I always want the vocal to be up enough for that. And I know power pop tends to fall into that place to where a lot of people just love the sound of it. You know, Pete Townsend coined the phrase anyway, power pop for a description of uh, I can see for miles and miles the, the single. And he used to say music allows you to dance all over your problems, which I thought was really great. I thought that was a, he's a very smart guy. And he always wrote lyrics that had some depth to them, you know, and I, he's a big inspiration in that respect. Ray Davis as well, trying to have something to say and not just the sheen in the, in the kind of oral ear candy part of power pop. Yes, I like that you can mix the most depressing, some of my favorite pop, it's like super depressing lyrics, but the fact that you're delivering it that way, it makes it okay. Well, it kind of allows you again to dance all over your problems, you know, as Pete said. So in this one, like I know one of your other recent songs, you wrote a very, it's about Trump and not being able to understand the appeal of this. This is more subtle. Do you feel like there's a target audience that any message of this sort will land with that, you know, too much information you had to let go. Now you can't decide what's right or wrong. 
Say a little more about if this does not demystify it too much. Yeah, I think people were confused depending on which news outlet they were getting. They were getting alternate versions of reality. It just limits that fact that we're not all on the same page anymore and everybody's very isolated. And plus the COVID uh, pandemic put everybody in isolation as well. The combination of that and what was going on in politics and the news. So that song was very much a reaction to all that. Well, and it's nice that even though it's, you know, it's a social commentary song of a way, but it's done like nobody could accuse you of being preachy with this song. The way that it is delivered is even handed about uh-huh. it and not insult anybody. Don't want to do that. You don't keep friends by yelling at them. You know, you try to extend the hand, as it were. All right. And the only thing that makes this longer than a two minute song, other than the fact that it's not really fast, is uh, you have the extra modulated last chorus. Let's jump up a little bit. Can you say anything about sort of the, your decision-making and how you're going to end something like this? That's just one of those devices that people use, you know? It's like you get, like, you're going to repeat the course again. Well, let's kick it up one time. You know, let's move it up to a different key. And it keeps things interesting. It's something that a lot of people have done over the years. And you don't want to use it every time, but it's a nice device. Well, and another device here, right before that, you know, it's not just a solo. It's the solo that you're still going to have the vocal answering, which I don't hear that that often, but you know, it definitely keeps it more rooted than I have a lead guitarist in the band that I have to let fill his space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since I was playing guitar, I didn't insult <laughs> the guitar player by saying, no, uh, I'm going to sing with you on this because it's so sing songy, that melody that I just haven't having the voice in there as well as the solo, neither the guitar player or the singer were offended because it was me. <laughs> So I didn't offend myself with that. All right. Well, let's get the second one out there since we keep referring to it. What Time Won't Heal from the previous album, Working the Long Game, 2018, a co-write with Graham Gouldman. That's cool. (laughs) I was flabbergasted. I've met him a few times here in Nashville and in New York once many years ago. And I was in London and the previous time in Nashville, I'd actually gotten together with him just on a social thing at a party. And we traded emails about, hey, I'm going to be over there. He goes, well, yes, let's make time to write. So I actually went to his house. And this has happened to me several times in my life where somebody who wrote songs when I was 12, I end up writing or working with on some level. And it's a full circle, pinch yourself kind of thing. And he's a sweet guy, a really consummate writer. I'll tell you a funny story is that real quick is that the uh, opening chords are just A minor, G, F. And he was just with us strumming away in the room. All the leaves are brown. or uh... Yeah, <laughs> well, all along the watch. That's what I, yes. <laughs> all, the, all, the, all those songs that have that in chord progression. And I thought to myself in my head, oh, he's just trying to get rid of me. You know, <laughs> this is going to be, this is not going to go well. And then I started putting some figures around it. And then he started humming the melody, which wasn't, what I thought, you know, oh, that sounds like Graham Goulburn. And, you know, we ended up coming up with something, wrote it in a day and uh, just in an afternoon, even had tea and little sandwiches in between. He was just a lovely guy. I just so great. And then after I sent him my version of it, he turned around and cut it for his record. He did an album called Modesty Forbids, and it's on that album as well. So I was thrilled to get to write with him and have him to do the song as well was uh, great, you know. You lost your friend 
Hey, let's have a little break. But before we do, I want to point out that if you become a supporter of this podcast, you never have to hear ads on these episodes again. And in this case, I recorded additional interview footage with Bill and have stuck on another of his songs. So if you want to hear more about his band history, his collaborations, that is a little bonus recording that you can get either with our Patreon or paid Apple podcast feed. I am very grateful to our recurring sponsors that make this show possible, including Nebbia. 
a high-powered, high-tech innovator in the area of showering. Nebbia was started by engineers that previously worked at Tesla, NASA, and Apple, who were passionate about saving the planet. We have a real water crisis in our world, and particularly in the western half of our country right now, as many of you know or are experiencing. So these folks wanted to design a superior shower experience that would use less water. Tim Cook was their first investor, and they partnered with industry leaders Moen to create the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower which uses atomized droplets to heat up the environment of your shower. They sent me one of these. I have long talked about what a luxurious experience this is. A high-pressure shower head does the job, rinses even the thickest hair. But then they introduced the Quattro, their most affordable shower yet, which they also sent me. And now I can experience four spray modes, including two powerful high-pressure spray modes, in addition to the spa spray. So now it satisfies all types of water preferences. And it is the easiest installation yet. A three-minute process as easy as changing a light bulb. Available as a fixed rain shower or hand shower version. Both are made with recycled ocean plastic. Using manufacturing processes. Not only for the shower. But for their shower curtains, bath mats, hooks, shower shelves. That are super sustainable. Each mode of the shower saves 40 to 50% of water compared to traditional shower. So it's really going to pay for itself over not that much time. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. I also want to tell you about Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. You can learn filmmaking from Werner Herzog, the power of personal branding from Chris Jenner, conservation from Jane Goodall, purposeful communication from George Stephanopoulos, and of course, there are many music classes featuring such luminaries as Ringo Starr, Metallica, Itzhak Perlman, St. Vincent, Reba McIntyre, Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, Danny Elfman, Timbaland, pretty much any musical genre you can think of, there's going to be somebody exceptional representing it. I'm looking this time at a new course by the Duffer Brothers. They teach developing an original TV series. They made Stranger Things. If you have watched this show, or even if you haven't, you might want to know how such a thing got developed. How do they do their world building and character development? How to write and finalize a story outline? The elements that go into a script... And perhaps most importantly, how to actually pitch this to Hollywood. So fun to see these guys talk. An interesting view into this industry that I'm not a part of, but is a part of my life. Like, I'm sure it's a part of yours. And there are many avenues in the Masterclass catalog of over 100 classes to pursue in this way, whether it's novel writing or fashion or cooking or government or philosophy. It's probably going to be at least one course that will justify your signing up. But then once you're in there, you're going to find a lot of other stuff that you and, you know, your family members who you can share this with will want to experience. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. All right, let's get back and talk about that song. What time won't heal that you just heard. 
so doing that little Spanishy thing was the way of justifying it is okay to use this chord progression. I know people are going to think of some <laughs> other things. It has a little bit of that bus stop vibe, which he wrote for the Hollies. Yeah. It has a little bit of that in it. And he loved the slide guitar on my version. And that's Pat Buchanan, who's a, an amazing guitar player here in Nashville and also makes good records, kind of power poppy records on his own. He's great. And Pat did that, all that slide stuff. Which I noticed on the Graham version, all of it is sort of tamped down. It's a more compressed recording. It's almost exactly the same tempo. It's like one second different. I was even wondering, like, did you guys start with the same tracks and just mix it elsewhere? But no, he just, I guess, was Uh, influenced enough by what you had put on there that most of the elements that you have are there. He added a little like tinky tink piano, like a little more movement in the keyboards. He also did the bridge twice, which I thought was great. When he did that, I thought, oh, God, I wish I'd thought of that. (laughs) That was uh, because that was a really great move. A double bridge. Yeah. The fact that he came with the melody sort of explains a little maybe your the fact that your voice sounds a little different on this one. Like I thought maybe you had done it after Graham. Like that, not that it sounds exactly like Graham, but it's at least a more a lower register for you. I did my version first. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just there's a remember singing very close to the mic. I think there's more of an intimate kind of feel on that. I'm not projecting my voice out so much as being a little more intimate with the mic. So maybe, I don't know if it's, A minor is a key that I sing in a bit. So I don't know if it was that much lower than I usually have. But I think the way I worked the mic on that particular recording might give it a different feel. Now, this is a more, I don't want to say generic, but when you're in a co-writing situation, particularly if you're going to write for somebody that else, potentially, I don't know, did you even know what you were going to do with the song or you're just, just writing a song? Yeah, I've written some songs with some great people, and we both end up liking the song, but it just depends on when you have time to to get to it. I've got a couple right now. I got to write something with Elliot Easton from The Cars this last year, and I still haven't gotten around to cutting it yet. And I'm really anxious to do that because we end up writing a really good song. It's just kind of, I got to get around to it. So I still have to explain my word generic, which is not supposed to be insulting, but you're not going to put your most personal messages in a song that you're presumably writing in the room with somebody else, right? The thing that's eating at you that you want to say to your spouse right then, I mean, do you save that for the solo recording? Or is that just like, if that's what's on your mind? I think if you're true to yourself, you let loose. I think songwriting is much cheaper than therapy. And co-writing, I think you can be embarrassingly forthright in a co-writing session with a stranger. It's very much like walking into a I've got a new therapist, you know, for today between 10 and 2. I'm going to be uh, writing a song, but it's like going into a therapy session. If you want to be true to whatever the lyric is, sometimes you work from a title. Sometimes you work from a a musical figure, you know. It's just any way the song comes about, you just have to kind of follow that. And What Time Won't Heal did come from that line. I had that title already. And we just kind of talked about what it might mean. But they all come different. Don't Kill the Messenger, I had the title first. And in putting this in second person, it's you. Does that enable you to be, if it's a confessional, then you're like creating a character, you know, whether that's you or that's, you know, something that you're creating with somebody else who then has to be expressing this stuff. But no, it's addressing someone else's, it's an advice song, sort of. Which there's something almost particularly country or whatever, like the John Mellencamp example that about third person that always struck me as like not personal enough. Like I, I, I like confessional songs. I like talking to somebody, but obviously Bob Dylan is can write a third person all day long. It has to become literature 
if it's going to be third person. It just has to be done well. Lou Reed writes a lot of third person stuff. When I think about that album he did called New York. That's exactly what I was saying. That is literary. Dirty Boulevard or something like. Dirty, Dirty Boulevard. There we go. You and I are on the same page on that. That's exactly where, what a story and very emotional. Trying to connect in whatever way you can. All right, just a few more details on this. So we talked about the steel guitar and it, is it lap steel or is it just you're playing with a slide? I assume you're just playing a regular guitar with a slide on Time Won't Heal. Again, that's Pat Buchanan. Oh, right, of course. Yep. And that's him doing that kind of George Harrison vibe of steel. And he, he's so brilliant, he can harmonize with himself. And so... Through an overdub, I assume, right? Or is he just, it's not just a funny tuning. His whole part was an overdub. No, he didn't have to resort to any funny tunings. He's a top shelf guitar player. Yeah, that time where it launches into the stratosphere, sort of the highest level that you let this get, that it is specifically not, even though it has some sparkly bits. And of course, the Bane, Birdsy, electric thing that we still have in both these songs is there. What is the limit in terms of, is it a matter of like, if you're in a band with four vocalists, you're going to stack the vocals high. But if you're doing something like this, like two is probably enough. I don't really put any kind of limitations on what on it recording. I'm always of a mind that you record something and you just try to do the best you can with it and make it sound, well, make it sound like you want to make it sound until you're, you feel satisfied. Then uh, the live, if you do have a lucky enough to have a live band and go out and play the same songs live, then it turns into kind of another thing. I mean, you know, the difference between a record by say Springsteen doing jungle land in the studio and then you hear the live version you kind of go whoa you know it just gets transported to another level especially over time where they've been playing the song live for so many years that it kind of morphs into a grand bigger thing nrbq is one of my favorite bands and very seldom will the record sound much like what they're doing live i just like the fact that you can record something and then not worry have to worry too much about having to duplicate it live, unless you're the Eagles, of course, you know, they just do things just like the record. And it's it's kind of note perfect. But I prefer the bands that have a little more rock and roll, you know, slap and tickle, whatever. I, I just like, has more edges, room for sparks to fly. I mean, have you had a live outlet for the power pop stuff for a while? I know with the pandemic. I did a record called Live at Blackbird Academy. Oh, okay. Where it's Pat, the guitar player I was saying about, Mike Vargo and Keith Brogdon and I went in and did a bunch of my songs as a four-piece, just playing these songs live. And I'm glad we got to document that band because I don't know if we'll ever get to play together again. So thinking about the harmonies again, it sounds like it's different people singing the echo, the time don't care, or is that just you with differently mic'd? It's me differently mic'd. Okay, because it has that different flavor. And sometimes I will make a point of like, I want to make it sound like a live band, even if it's, you know, even if I'm just dragging in studio, other voices, you know, female voices, this would be a part that you could easily see like, okay, let's have a couple women or one harmonizing herself just to float off. But then it's much more of a time consuming affair than just, just laying it down yourself in the five minutes that it would take. I've been lucky. My friend Kim Ritchie has sung on some of my records. And that's always a lovely blend. You know, of course, we've been singing together since we were teenagers. Yeah, I was going to so. say, that's the first name you brought up. <laughs> but Dennis LaCourier from Dr. Hook sang some harmony on one of my records too many years ago. But largely, uh, I'll just kind of do it myself until the opportunity presents itself for someone else to be in there. Mm-hmm. 
This seems like there's more sweetening on this that you had in addition to the dun, 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 the Spanish guitar or whatever, that it ends up being doubled by something higher that you're doing Mando over it or something? Or uh, Maybe. I, I can't remember. I know that it's a nylon string. Da, 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 and that was a nod definitely to Bus Stop in those kind of the Hollies record that Graham wrote. I, I really wanted to have that nylon string thing in there. Or I had just one spot that I wanted to pull out. This is the end of a verse. It sounded like you let the bass actually do the turnaround, but there's a low guitar that goes... You almost do a guitar riff, but not really. (laughs) It's just not a fancy one. It's just a very simple kind of implying the bass note to not be a A, but going up to a C sharp. The bass doesn't do that, but having that low guitar, it makes the chord denser right there, and just kind of a touch. So was that because the bass probably was done first, and you felt like, I need something to connect this? You know, when you're stacking stuff up, it's like being in the room with a band. You're responding to what's there already, and you play the parts that kind of come to mind in reaction to what's already there on tape. So you did the final mix, right, on this? Well, I'm responsible for it. There's like, uh, I work with talented people. So the guy who mixed that is a guy I work with a lot named Jonathan Bright. And JB has a, it's just, it's not a fancy studio or anything like that. It's a Pro Tools rig and his shack out back, you know, kind of thing. But uh, he's got a really great relationship with his gear and knows how to use it. And he and I have been working together for, since about 2012. So 10 years now we've been, We always say that we're making rock history every time we go in the studio. Okay, today's the day to make rock history, you know. So are you sitting behind him when that's happening, or is there sending stuff back and forth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we go, I mean, he's got a little control room, and then he's got another room with the tracking and overdubs go on. In the other room, it's a little two-room shack, really. Although the stuff done at Blackbird Academy was recorded in one of the finest studios in Nashville, so. Well, as long as you get the drums... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> recorded in a nice place, then you could put an SM57 on guitar amp and it's fine. Yeah, but, but exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact is he gets great drum sounds in his shack. He really does. He's just got a great relationship with his gear and he's a very talented guy. He works with uh, Raylan Nelson, who's Willie Nelson's granddaughter. And they have a band called the Raylan Nelson Band and they, they make records and he writes songs with her. And then he also just did a project with do you remember Jason and the Scorchers? I know the name. Jason yeah. The Scorchers. Uh, Warner and Jeff from that band just did a project with JB too. So he's staying busy out there. Well, let's get the third song out there. So same sort of spirit, but back from your first solo album, Feeling the Elephant. Although the song you picked off and running, you said was not actually included on that. It was unreleased until 2021 with the expanded version of that. Is that right? So it was recorded 1987 or so. Again, I was recording bits and pieces of tracks and assembling demos into my first solo record. My lawyer had gotten in touch with a guy up in Boston named Chuck Warner, who had a label called Throbbing Lobster. They had been profiled in Spin Magazine, and he knew the guy from having bought records from him. They were record collectors, and Chuck had a business where he was selling records too. So they knew each other already, and he sent him my stuff. and. Chuck liked it. So my first solo album was sort of put together in pieces, just like I'm doing these days too. I record and then find all the tracks that tend to work together 
And the odd thing about that album release, it took so long to get it out. By the time it did, I had already signed to RCA Records with Radney Foster and had a country deal, which was a big surprise for me and everybody at the time. And that was just the wonderful opportunity that fell in our laps. But my first solo album, Feeling the Elephant, was an amalgam of demos and things. And Off and Running was in the batch, and it just didn't quite sound like some of the other stuff. So, you know, now I've got this reissue of the first album, and there's twice as many songs on it, 20 songs. And you practically get a whole other album with the re-release.
So it's funny that this is still in the power pop thing, but it's there's not actually a chorus <laughs> that it's what you're running for. And then it's the instrumental is the chorus. Like there's no ahs, you know. <laughs> yeah, it didn't have that. Costello was a big influence at that time. And I don't know if that's something that he did on his songs, but he was probably the biggest influence I was listening to. I know the wordplay in that song, the lyrical wordplay. It was all a little too clever now to me. But on the other hand, it was where I was at at the time. People liked it at the time. I would play it live, but it never it never made the album. So It's second person again, but it's a little biting in the Costello sort of way. What is the message here? Do you r- recall where this came from? I, I think it was a bunch of lines that were one line follow the next and just trying to be clever. It's one of those things where the record is better than the song, I think. You know, it's catchy and has a good sound to it, but the song itself, you know, the wordplay and stuff, but people like it. I mean, I don't want to sit here and badmouth my own stuff, but it doesn't carry the same kind of songwriting I did as I got older. So you had shared your your YouTube channel with me, which has a 1986 performance of a, a different song, but around this time from Bill Lloyd and the December Boys. Is that the band that sort of worked this out and that is playing on this version? We did this song live at that point, uh, and it was part of our regular sets that we would play around Nashville. Being in Nashville. There was a great alternative scene in Nashville. It was small, but really talented people came out of it. And a lot of people that are doing really well in the music business these days their careers harken back to that time people who are writers songwriters and producers and it wasn't so insular a scene that people didn't go on to actually have success people did but it was just sort of a reaction it was part of the times you know post-punk there were some out and out punk rock bands there was pop bands but nashville did have an alternative scene and with vanderbilt university being there there was a college radio scene, and we were all fortunate enough to be played on that station. Like Feeling the Elephant, for instance, was played like a, a local hit. Uh, it, it got so much airplay locally. I came to Nashville because I wanted to write songs, and I wanted to keep playing in a rock and roll band. And I managed to do that. But then after I got signed as a staff songwriter at Mary Tyler Moore MTM Music, and I met People like Beth Chapman, who I still write songs with, and Rodney Foster. Mm-hmm. And once we started writing songs together, that, of course, ended up being a duo that made records for RCA for about five years. But it was all just kind of following your nose, following the opportunities that arise when you're doing it. It's like putting a lot of hooks in the water and hoping that something will happen. But everybody at that age, you're young and you're kind of driven to do whatever it takes to kind of make ends meet and not work a day job. If you can get a job as a staff songwriter and they pay you to write songs, that was the best. I could actually stop working in record stores once I got that gig. How does the hustle compare? Or do you have enough royalties running in from something that it's not a comparable situation? Are you talking about now versus I'm just, then? Yes. That it sounds like there were slots where you could like become a staff songwriter and sort of, now I have a niche. Whereas a lot of people that I talk to, even if they used to be famous, it's definitely like a let's patch together things and I have to run a studio and produce people or like, how are you making all the pieces fit together? <laughs> all the all the above, just like everybody else, I think. I did a session as a guitar player on Thursday of this last week oh. where I was under headphones for about four hours 
and playing on somebody else's record. So, uh, are you allowed to say until it comes out? I I said, but it's it was actually a really good session working with really good people. And can uh, you tell me it was a rock or a country session? Uh, in between, very much in between. Maybe even that doesn't matter as much. Yeah, I think I think you're right with the Americana country situation kind of being so intermeshed at this point. Yeah, you're right. I don't think it matters so much, but this guy's really good. I'm glad I got to play on it. And then I have a band here in town, like I mentioned earlier about the lawn players, where uh, we do corporate events as well as play locally. And then I still have songwriting royalties and I'm 66 now. So uh, I'm off the government teat or onto the government teat again of uh, social security. So uh, yeah, you know, it's like, Thank you. I paid in my money and now I'm going to take a little bit of it. And, and there's certain pensions with the union things that I was involved with. So uh, working on all that. So, yeah, I'm making it OK. I'm not rich and I don't think I ever will be. But I have a great history of in my personal history. I have I really wouldn't change a thing and was really lucky to get to work with so many great people and got to make a bunch of different records. And it's still ongoing. I've got a new band, or I'm part of a new band, not my band, but in the 90s, I played with a guy named Rusty Young from the band Poco, and we had a band called the Sky Kings, and with uh, Pat Simmons of the Doobie Brothers, Rusty Young from Poco, and John Cowan from Newgrass Revival, and myself, and we had two different record deals, one on RCA, one on Warner Brothers, and that band, without Pat on Warner Brothers, struggled with uh, the country format for about five years before uh, just kind of giving up the ghost. But Rusty passed away this last year, and I'm in a new band with the guys who played with Rusty and Poco, the last version. And we're making a record for Blue Elan label out of LA. And Blue Elan has artists like the Rembrandts and John Anderson from Yes and Rita Coolidge and Jerry Beckley from America, a lot of legacy artists like that. So they saw fit to give us a deal. So even at my advanced age, I'm really lucky to have something in front of me instead of just sitting here talking about what was behind me. Well, yeah. So we've been tracing a little bit of the history of the power pop thing, but that you had the country thing running alongside it, that a lot of your most famous co-writing stuff, right, was you mentioned Boom It Was Over by Robert Ellis Orell. Uh-huh. Now, he's a guy who had a pop career, moved to Nashville, had a solo hit with he and Carlin Carter, had a song called Couldn't Say No. That was actually a, I think it was a top 40 national hit, but he moved to Nashville and had a country career as well. And he and I wrote a song called Boom It Was Over that was, uh, I think it made top 20. It got airplay enough to get one of those BMI Millionaire Awards for me. So it got played on the radio at least a million times. So, And that was back, it's not like streaming. That was radio airplay. Right. So was most of your big country co-writes sort of in that general early 90s, fresh off the Radney and uh, the Foster and Lloyd albums? A few of them came later. Uh, World of Hurt came later. That was a hit in, I guess, Denmark. Beth and I wrote that, and it was on one of her records, but it was like a, a big hit. Yes, Beth Nielsen Chapman, who I was not familiar with, but I thanks to you know seeing her her name next to yours on a number of these things, was looking up what she's doing. She yeah. is brilliant, and she continues to make records. In fact, she and I have a song on her new album that's coming out later this year. So she's a dear friend, and we go back to the early days of being signed to Mary Tyler Moore back in the 80s. Uh, but she's great. And we also wrote a song called Trying to Love You that Trish Yearwood did, and then 
I had a song Pam Tillis and I wrote called Going to Work that Martina McBride did. And uh, there's just a bunch of cuts like that. Also, Poco, Pure Prairie League, like country rock things. Marshall Crenshaw and I've written a bunch of songs and some are on my albums and some are on his albums. So yeah, we're going to conclude here by listening to the new version by this new band that you were mentioning. So it's Cimarron 615. Is that Cimarron, Cimarron 615? 615. Yeah. Uh, Rough Edges, which is an old song, 1989, that you wrote with uh, Radney Foster and with Rusty Young. It looks like a handful of songs by this band were released on this Rusty Young tribute album. Are those songs also going to be on the new thing that you're working on? Or that's no, the new album is really an original thing. We're not Poco 2.0 or anything like that. It's a new band. But it's because we recorded those songs for the Rusty tribute. Rough Edges is something that Rusty and Radney and I wrote it. And it was on the Poco Legacy album. Mm -hmm. The huge comeback album. I was finishing high school at the time. And like, that's the only reason I knew who Poco is, you know, apart from delving back into music history. Well, Call It Love was the hit from that. And the drummer in this band, uh, Rick Lano, is one of the writers on that song. And then Jack Sundred is also on, in the band. He was the bass player for Poco after Tim Schmidt, but never got called from <laughs> to play in the Eagles. <laughs> the other bass players in Poco, Randy Meisner and Tim Schmidt, both got to play in the Eagles. But Jack did not, unfortunately. He's the bass player. You're listed on their wiki pages having toured with them a little bit, but you never got to be an official Poco member. <laughs> I was never an official Poco member, although I think had things gone a little different, I could have. But I did play a handful of dates with them, subbing for Paul Cotton. And I ended up doing a whole lot of songwriter shows with Rusty. We played doing those song swap things here in Nashville. And then the Sky Kings thing was five years. So we got to play a lot together. But it was because of us all playing together out in Los Angeles doing this Rusty Young tribute, Rough Edges, and we did a couple other songs on there. And that's why the label said, well, you guys should make a record for us. And that's what we've done. And that's exciting. And did they want you? Was there discussion of, you could call yourselves Poco because it is continuous. Like if bands are going to exist for more than a generation, this has to happen. Like you mentioned John Anderson. Yes is almost totally different people. Even when Steve Howe dies, it'll probably still be yes, and it'll be yes in 40 years. You know, but Poco is not, that's not going to happen with that. I'm not really at liberty to say who owns the name. Okay. All right. And, and I think uh, Richie Fury's touring under his own name, but mentioning Buffalo Springfield and Poco. Uh, Jim Messina is out touring under his own name, and he mentions Buffalo Springfield and Poco, but there's nobody actually touring as Poco right now. And that's not really what we wanted to do either. We wanted to be a, a new thing. The songs for our upcoming record are all new, brand new songs. And we each, in fact, we each wrote two. It was split democratically. Uh, they said, well, the five of you be a band. And we said, okay. And they said, well, two songs each from each of you. And that made it easy. It's like the Beatles White Album, you know, where you have the songwriter and everybody else says, okay, what can we do to help? But the songwriter sort of works out the arrangement with the band and kind of has final say over it, but it's very much like a Beatles White Album kind of thing. Yes, it's a band, and yes, it's also an outlet for five songwriters. Like, I don't know if that kind of thing happens without a record label initiating it and kind of managing it at this point, because what is the financial incentive to just be like, I like your stuff, you like my stuff, because you and Graham Gouldman, you know, you wrote a song together, you could do an album together, 
it would be hard because you live in different parts of the world, but <laughs> he did a record. He made a, he was part of a duo with Andrew Gold for years called Wax. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, you probably maybe know from having worked with Linda Ronstadt and doing solo records. Thank you for being a friend was his big hit. He was a big Beatles nut and made some really wonderful records. And I worked with Andrew here in Nashville. And that was one of the connections when I first met Graham was that I had known Andrew Gold already. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Certainly, we could just keep talking music history and all these other great people that you've worked with. A tremendous resume, I guess, from being nestled in Nashville and having as much being a songwriter and willing to, I'm going to support people for their records rather than it just being all, this must be the Bill Ego (laughs) exploding on. There's a degree of that when you're younger, especially, you Mm -hmm. really want to make sure you put your stamp on a few things, but these great opportunities present themselves, especially in the world of country where I knew I was going to write some country songs when I moved here, if I could, if I had the ability to, but I didn't know that I was going to end up being a country artist, which I was a couple times on two different situations. Well, you have an accent, so that's okay. You can be a country artist. You're allowed. <laughs> uh, well, but uh, but uh, <laughs> the solo records that I've made are dear to me, and, and you can find those at, <laughs> here we go. You can find those at BillLloydMusic.net. All right. Yes. And I will link to some of the things that we mentioned but didn't get to play here from the blog post associated with this. Let's say goodbye. And here's Rough Edges by Cimarron615. Thanks, Mark.
Thanks so much to Bill. We had such a good discussion that we kept talking and I'm releasing that as a separate file of bonus material along with another song. You can only hear that at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music, where you could also get my notes uh, with the lyrics for the songs, structural breakdowns for this and many, many other episodes, or by becoming a paid supporter through Apple Podcasts. But as usual, as much as I appreciate your support, I hope you support the artists here. Bill has a lot of wonderful albums that even if you know him through his country persona, I hope I've made clear here that you are missing a lot. Some of his uh, really, really catchy songs just have not left my head since I recorded this. We weren't able to talk about it. I have linked to some of them, to their videos and such from the blog post associated with this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. But to get the full list of what he's done, go to billloydmusic.net. Note that his name is common enough that if you just look him up on Spotify, most of the things attributed to Bill Lloyd are by him, but some are from a UK folk singer who is not him. All right. I hope your summer is continuing to go well. I apologize for the break in my release schedule with that sort of a rerun of a pretty much pop episode last time. This uh, Bill Lloyd episode was supposed to come out a little earlier. The next one also in the bank is an interview with Susan Catanio a wonderful Boston singer-songwriter. And then I talked to Chastity Brown, a great country rock slash pop slash blues, I don't know, songwriter uh, based in Minneapolis. And just yesterday, I recorded an episode with Level 42's Mike Lindup. I don't spend a lot of time with jazz-tinged dance music. And Level 42, if you're even aware of them, is a band that, its sound is very much associated with the 80s, but Mike was a really interesting guy. His new songs are sonically astonishing, so hope you'll check out all these interviews. Be sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. You can find the links to do that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or just look it up on the podcast app of your choice. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Antonmeyer signing off. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh.